Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, let's get into it. Romans chapter 8 is where we find ourselves this morning as we are journeying through the greatest chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the ones that's in the seat back in front of you. Maybe if you just forgot yours today, I encourage you to, to use that Bible to follow along with me. And if you don't own a Bible at all, we'd love for you to keep that Bible as, as our gift to you. I, I hope that if you've been coming to Crosspoint for a while, or maybe if this is your first time, I hope that you get this, that uh, we're not really here to you know, play a couple of good songs and do it well, or to, for me or whoever's preaching to get up and come up with sort of helpful things to say, although I hope our music is good and I hope, I'm, I hope I'm helpful today here in just a few minutes. You be the judge of that. But we are, are coming to God's word because we believe that this book that we are opening up is God's very word and that it has authority in our lives and it's true and it's good and it's right. And, and we believe that God's Holy Spirit comes alongside of his word and through the communication of his word, the Holy Spirit transforms his people. For some of us who don't know him that maybe came into this room, God gives salvation. He, he literally saves by the power of his word preached. And for those of us that are already trusting in Christ, he comes alongside and gives us great encouragement. And so friends, the most important thing we can do in these, in these times when we gather together as a church family is to stare at God's word and to see the beauty of our risen glorious king. This is not just Sunday morning in the south where this is just what we do. We are coming to extol the beauty of God and the most important news in the whole universe. What God has done to reconcile a people for himself through his son on the cross and his death and resurrection. And today we come to a portion of Scripture, one of the most stunning paragraphs in the Bible. It is one of those paradigm-shifting paragraphs. It explains to us why things are the way they are and what God is doing in it all. So as we read Romans 8 and as we pray and as we work through what God is saying to us. I just pray that God, that I would, that I would sort of fade into the background and decrease and that the beauty of God's saving work through his son would increase and that Christians in this room would, oh, they, they just, we'd fall deeper in love with Jesus. Like, there are so many counterfeit loves. There are so many seductive voices in our culture. And I pray today that we would fall deeper in love with Jesus. And if you're not yet a Christian, I pray, that, I pray that Jesus, what God has done in Christ, and God's sovereign, gracious work in this world would be so clear and beautiful to you that it would, that it would melt your heart and that you would trust in him today. That's all I care about. And so let's, let's, let's 
ask the Lord to do that. Okay? Let me read Romans 8, verse 18 through 25, and, and let's pray. Paul writes these words. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Oh, Father, these are uh, monumental words, and we are small people. So help us as we stand at the foot of this mountain range. Lift our eyes so that we can see these glorious truths. Stir our hearts with affection and confidence. And for those that are in this room this morning who are not trusting in you, Lord, would you make your work in and through your Son so beautiful, so irresistible that they cannot help but turn away from false gods, false joys, and trust in you today for the first time. Do these things, I pray, for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the best way, I think, for us to work through this, this incredible paragraph. I've got four truths that I want us to just stare at, and then a few implications that I think flow out of those truths. So, truth number one from this paragraph. I think we see it in verse 18, and it is this. God's suffering children have an incomparably glorious future. Let me read verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So let's think about that. What type of suffering does Paul have in mind here when he's talking about this suffering that we are presently enduring and how it is not worth comparing to the future glory that awaits the children of God? And if you missed last week's message where Wayne talked to us about who the children of, our, of God are, how we have been adopted, how by our sin all human beings have been alienated by God and from His family, and we are not naturally born children of God. We're, 
we're born the creatures of God, but we're not the children of God naturally born, but that by Jesus' work on the cross, we have been adopted into God's family when we turn and trust from our, turn from ourselves and trust in, in Jesus. So he's got in view here, not all people, but God's people, the, the children of God. So what type of suffering does Paul have in mind here? Is he speaking about just the, the mere political persecution that the Roman Christians no doubt were, were undergoing? Well, I think certainly that, that's in view here. And that may have been sort of on the top of Paul's mind as he was thinking about suffering here. But I think as we read through the rest of the paragraph that what Paul actually, I think, is laying down as a principle, not just how we should endure suffering when it comes to maybe like the government harassing us or being, or being persecuted for being a Christian, but I think he's speaking about, on a broad level, all suffering that we endure as Christians because in just a moment here as we will unfold this paragraph, he opens it up to how creation itself is broken and suffering and is longing for this future, future gl- glory. So I think what's going on here is that it, is, it includes all suffering, not just maybe political or governmental or societal persecution, but all brokenness that we have to endure as God's, God's people. And as we look at this first truth, how God's suffering children have an incomparably glorious future, let's just realize that that suffering is a prerequisite for, for the Christian. It, it's something that all of us will have to go through. In fact, one verse earlier in, in Romans 8, 16 and 17, that Wayne preached on last week, it says that it's the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's just establish that. That suffering is something that all of us, nobody in this room will be untouched by suffering. You have either suffered, you are suffering now, or you will suffer soon. Or maybe all three of those is is true. And I think to some level that's true of all of us. All three of those apply to us all the time. But here's the, the thing that we need to see in verse 18 this truth that Paul is laying down for us. He is saying that for God's children, what they're going through now cannot be compared to the glory of the future. Look at those three words there in verse 18. He says that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Those three words, not worth comparing are, are essential. It, 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 means, it means that that includes everything that we are going through, or it means nothing at all. See, isn't it easy to kind of, you know, when we have a bad day, or we're just going through a frustrating time, where we can think, well, you know what, the future is going to be better than this. But what about, what about when things get, like, really, really bad? Like, this truth, this verse has to apply not only in Columbus, Georgia, amongst mostly middle class Americans. This verse also has to apply to persecuted Christians in faraway lands and people in Iraq that are being harassed by ISIS. This has to include countries in West Africa that, are, that are, have the, the threat of Ebola bearing down on them. 
friends? This verse has to apply to all suffering, and all suffering is not worthy to compare to the glory that will, will be revealed in us, or it doesn't apply to any of it at all. And, I, you know, we as Americans have a tough time sort of grappling with that, don't we? I mean, we're, we're sort of getting a taste of the way the rest of the world lives, the anxiety of evil terrorists and the prospect of an uncontrollable plague. Friends, this is the way a vast majority of the rest of the world lives every day. And so Paul here is laying down a principle, a rule, and he's saying that all human suffering, think about this, the worst of atrocities is not worth comparing to future glory. Friends, that's spectacular. That's hard to think about. I mean, let me just kind of give you this mental picture. Let's, uh, let's start a, a point over there in that wall over there, the end of the sanctuary. And let's say that that wall is the worst human suffering in history. Maybe some atrocity committed by a dictator. Maybe Hitler or some terrible despot. And then let's run that line all the way. What direction is this? Where are we going? Are we going west, east? Whatever. Let's go all the way. Somebody tell me which direction this is. I'm complete. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. All four. South, north, east. Well, okay. Well, whatever. Let's run that line a million miles that way. And on the end of that line is future glory. Okay? So get this picture in your head with me. Over there at that wall is the worst human atrocity that's ever been committed. The worst degree of suffering that humanity has ever surfaced. Suffered. And then let's run that line, whatever direction it is, or you think it is, a million miles that way. And at the end of that line, let's put future glory. Friend, do you realize that the difference between the worst atrocity and a paper cut is infinitesimally small compared to how great glory will be for the future Christian. Think about that. And friends, I, I am not in any way minimizing any suffering that anybody's going. I mean, I've, come on, I, I've, I've never really been through anything. You know? I think I've had the flu once. Uh, you know? I, I mean, I got, a, I got a wonderful wife, great kids. I don't even know if I've broken a bone. I got knocked out in a high school football game one time, and I woke up, and it was a couple days later. And, you know, there's my mom giving me candy. I, mean, I know people in this room have been through horrific things. And Paul is saying here that the future glory that awaits Christians makes that seem like a, a tiny little back on the spectrum of human experience. God's suffering children have an incomparably glorious future. Truth number two. All creation suffers and longs for future freedom. Every aspect of the universe, every 
creature on this earth, every part of nature, everything suffers and longs for future freedom. Let's read again verses 19 through 22. For the creation, that, that includes, that's everything. That's you. That's me. That's every, that's every molecule that's been created. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Friends, this, this, this little passage here explains so much. The world is broken and frustrated and subjected to futility. That's why, that's why cars break down. That's why houses need maintenance. That's why tornadoes tear through towns. And that's why tsunamis crash on coastal cities and wipe them off of the map because the world is broken. That's why things explode and wither and die. That's why things rust and wear out. That's why you popped for Motrin this morning before you came to church. Because you are getting old and you're sore and you're not what you used to be. <laughs> One of, uh, just a little aside here, going on a rabbit trail. One of the great graces that God has given me, I used to actually think I was kind of a really good athlete. And uh, then my 12-year-old son, Joseph, beat me in a foot race. I used to think I was pretty quick. And we just, he just said one day, I said, let's race down our driveway. He was like, all right. He didn't even have any shoes on. I was limbered up, warm. I'm going to get this little punk, put him, in, put him in his place. And we started off on about a 40-yard dash. And you're like Fred Flintstone when his, when his you know... <laughs> His feet are moving really fast, but he's not really going anywhere. That's kind of where I was. I was just, before I knew it, I was looking at his back as he just left me in the dust, right? I mean, come on. I'm, I'm just a, I'm just getting acquainted with my ordinariness. We're marching towards decay, right? And it explains why the world is the way it is. It's broken. I think Louis Armstrong was only half right. It's a wonderful world because it's created by God and it still bears so much beauty. But it's a broken world. It's a broken world. It's a broken world. And it is longing. It's, it's groaning. Weather patterns and wars and even our own bodies. It's like a, a chorus that we're all singing together and the note is one great ache. It's aching for this day when God will finally and fully make it all right. We're pressing into that day and creation itself is pressing into that day. Which leads us then to truth number three which we need to wrestle with, which is true, hard, but good for us. And it is this, that as we in creation suffer and long for this future freedom, we need to realize that it is God 
who has designed suffering to serve his purpose. Now, friends, let's slow down here and think deeply about this. Let's read again verse 20 and 21. Notice who is behind the verb, like who's doing the subjecting. I think we have three options as we, as we slow down and read the Bible slowly here. Notice, notice the design behind what's going on with the brokenness of the world and creation. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected. So there's somebody doing the subjecting. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there's somebody doing this objecting. It's not random. Things haven't just kind of spun out of control and the Trinity's up there saying, oh my goodness, what's, what's going on here? We've got we to gotta fix this thing. But there's somebody doing this objecting. There's somebody that has a, a plan, a design in this futility. And, and I think we only have three options as we consider who may doing, be doing this subjecting. Either one, it's, it's mankind, it's us. Adam and Eve in the garden saying, you know, we're going to disobey God because we know that eventually this thing is going to turn out right. And this is going to be awesome just to watch the span of history, how this is going to go. So let's in hope that God's going to eventually do something great. No. That's, this doesn't even make sense that Adam and Eve would have that type of foresight. They're created beings, right? So let's, option number one is no good. Option number two would be that, well, it's Satan that's behind all of this. He's the one that wants to jack things up and punish us. Well, I think that's certainly true to some degree, but notice what the motivation is for the one doing the subjecting that Paul says here. He says that creation was subjected to futility in hope that creation itself will be set free. So there is this grand, redemptive, good, divine purpose behind. The devil wouldn't subject us to futility and have as his motivation the hope that we would eventually be set free from it, would he? So that, that nullifies option number two. We didn't do it. The devil didn't do it. Friends, the only other option is, and it's the clear reading of the text, that God, in ways that are mysterious to us, but in ways that are clearly good and for his glory and our eternal joy, has allowed, ordained, been behind, designed even the futility that has entered in through sin and rebellion and all of the consequences that came as a result of it in the hope that he would eventually save it and restore it and glorify it. Now friends, let's take that in. Let's confess a couple things. That is not the way we grew up as Americans, right? Where we are the center of the universe and God is there to sort of, you know, help us out and make things better for us. And God is up there with like a four-leaf clover. He loves me. He loves me not just sort of hoping that we will agree with him. Friends, this is a radically God-centered verse. And it is saying that God in his mysterious and wise and good counsel is behind all things and is in complete control of the universe and has designed it this way, never culpable or guilty for sin or its consequences, but is sovereign over it and orchestrating it and designing it for the display of his Saving, redeeming grace. 
Friends, that, let's admit it. That's a hard truth. It cuts against our natural grain. And some of us in this room don't like it. And you know what? I've been right there with you. But let's, let's consider the alternative, which is the only other alternative. Is that this futility and sin and consequences and great evil happened outside of God's mysterious good, providential control. Friends, that picture of the universe that God is not in control and is reacting to evil and Satan and futility is a far scarier picture than one in which God is in ways that are mysterious to us but in which he is gloriously for the good of his children and the glory of his name in control of everything. Friends, the sooner you, you wrestle with that truth and the sooner you, you begin to pull it into your life and the sooner you begin to lean into it, the, the more biblical picture of God that you will have and and you will line your heart up with the way things are. You may ask, and I think it's a legitimate question, why would God do it this way? Why would God do it this way? Well, friends, that, that's where I think we need to be very humble. I think we'd be well served to flip one chapter over in Romans and read Romans 9, where when Paul sort of asks that question rhetorically, he says things like, what, what right does the clay have now to, to speak to the potter? Go to Job chapters 38 through 41 where he says to Job, no, wait a minute, what, 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 you're questioning my ways? Where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I filled the deep seas and created this beautiful landscape? Where were you? Wait a minute, now what? But God doesn't just chew us away and say, you can't question me. God, I think, gives us a picture in Romans chapter 9, where he says that what if God, desiring to show his glory, has prepared the world this way, that evil would come in and sin would wreak its havoc so that he would be able to, in a greater way, display his saving grace, that he would show off his beauty, that he would magnify his glory by saving a people for himself. And God, in his wise counsel, has deemed the display of his glory in allowing the fall and saving a people for himself to be the most glorious thing that he can do. Friends, that's a hard truth. That's the way things are. And it is good it is hard, but it is good. Well, truth four. Christians also, along with creation, all of us, must suffer and groan in hope, waiting for future glory. Let me read verse 23 through 25 again. And not only the creation, so it's not just about tornadoes and tsunamis and rust and wars and hurricanes, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul is clearly saying here, as he reminded us at the beginning, that this is a a prerequisite for being a child of God, that God in some kind and unknown way often to us is putting us through this suffering according to his grand design to deepen our joy in him and display the surpassing worth of God to the world that through his people hoping did you pick up on that word hoping in him they become a display of the world and the life and the glory that is to come we become a kind of picture of the world that is to come and God displays the very thing that he intends to magnify his glory through us as we endure suffering in hope waiting for this future glory We become a kind of picture. We become a little microcosm of what God is doing on a grand scale in our lives. So I end with this. Three quick implications that flow from these truths. Number one, this should transform, should absolutely transform our view of suffering. Friends, suffering is the pathway to the kingdom of of God. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, the disciples are preaching the word of God. It's taking root and catching like fire across the Roman Empire. In verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So friends, that is not a prosperity gospel that they're preaching there. Look, that would not make it on the editor room floor of TBN. That would not make it. That would not sell well at a Bible bookstore. Hey, hey, let me me title a new book. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. That's not on a New York Times bestseller list. And that's the message of these early disciples. Suffering is the pathway. Because remember that God is is doing something through us to to display the surpassing worth of Christ. Listen to this earlier on in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41 through 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Think about that. Yes! This is awesome! We get to display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. Do we, do we view that like that? Do we view suffering in our... our we don't, do we? We get so mad. I mean, we, we, we watch Fox News and our blood boils. Because we don't realize this biblical truth as, as clearly as we should. That suffering is meant to be our servant, not our master. God designed it. He has designed it according to this paragraph in Romans 8. To be our servant, not our master. I know it's been a few weeks, so let me give you another Chuck Spurgeon quote. 
This is, if I had a top 10 list of Charles Spurgeon quotes, this would be in the top 10. He writes in his little book, All of Grace. Listen to the, to the line of thinking and the logic here. It is so true, and it should transform our view of suffering. From the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus rules all things here below and makes them work together for the salvation of his redeemed. He uses both bitter and sweet things, trials and joys, that he may produce in sinners a better mind toward their God. Be thankful for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad. For by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to himself. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Friends, do you see how heavenly minded that, that, that text is from, from Spurgeon? He's saying that, friends, we, we need not despair when we don't get the opportunity or our, our kid isn't super gifted or, or doesn't make the all-star team or, or maybe we're not the cutest person in the group or, or maybe we're suffering with some, with some thing that was just vexing us. What Spurgeon is telling us, and it's true because I believe it's biblical, is that God in his kindness for his children is working all things together for their good and is using even trial and struggle and affliction. And it's like Jesus is riding on a horse wooing us, wooing us to heaven and unclenching our fists from this earth. Friends, that is the great privilege that we have as Christians to see suffering in that light. Look, look, these 80 years are not all that there is and oh, how my soul needs to hear that again and again and again. Another implication is that it should give us great motivation To pursue our sanctification. Listen to Peter's logic in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And Peter has in view here the future age, the next life, and what impact this certainty of this broken world that we live in being finally fully restored, what that should produce in us now. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Verse 11, listen to this sentence. Since all these things are to thus be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. He's saying that, look, this life is not worth dying for, so give your life away for the next life. Let that be a motivation for your holiness and your longing to be more like Jesus. You know that little hashtag? Hashtag YOLO, you only live once. Stop it, if you're, if you're used to saying that. That's such a ridiculous line of reasoning. And the line of reasoning of this little YOLO phrase, Y-O-L-O, 
oh, you only live once. Hashtag, if you're over 40 and you need somebody to explain it to you, don't have time, catch up later. <laughs> Think of that. That is the pervasive thought of this world. Get all you can now. Sow all your wild oats. Accumulate all you can now because you only live once. Friends, that is wicked reasoning. The world will tell you to seize the moment because this is all there is while the Bible is telling us to seize the moment and live for now, holiness and holiness now because eternity really, really matters and it is real. You do live once, but you live forever. And Peter is telling us in light of that, we should live in a way because of what God has done through Jesus on the cross, giving us life in him, putting his spirit in us so that we can fight sin and live in joy, live in such a way that propels our joy in him. And friends, how can we do this without each other? This is why we need a church. This is why we need not to be people that just sort of live on the edge. Because this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, skipping to the end there. If one member suffers, all suffer together. God uses our suffering and uses our life together as we support one another in this way to deepen our joy in him and wean us from this earth and woo us to heaven. And the third implication, and I wrap it up on this, this then not only should transform our present view of suffering, it shouldn't only be a great motivation for our pursuit of Christ and sanctification, but it should embolden us to be on mission. God uses our suffering to display the surpassing worth of Christ. He he uses the way we as people endure the brokenness of this world to be an aroma to an onlooking world. So he hasn't just saved us so that we can just sort of hunker down and hold on, but he has saved us and allows us to go through wicked and horrible things at times so that through us, he wouldn't just deepen our joy in him, but he would through us display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world who are all groaning, groaning for something true and real and eternal. Friends, I think the point of this paragraph is simply this. Dear Christian, it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. I think the great point of Romans chapter 8 is assurance. The God who has saved you by his grace will surely bring you all the way home. And home is not a comfortable 80 years. It is ever-increasing joy forever and ever and ever with God. And so in light of that, let me let go of this broken world and grab hold of God. Let's pray. Father, as we wrestle with these truths, they're grand and they're glorious. And we confess it's hard for us to wrap our minds around them. Help us, Lord to see your purpose 
to see your good and gracious and satisfying purpose and pain to deepen our joy in you and to display the surpassing worth of Christ through us. For Christians in this room, would you stir our affections for Jesus? Would you anchor us deeper, not into temporary things, but eternal things? For people that are in this room who came in unbelieving, Lord, would, would you take my, my mere words and would you use them to bring life, faith, and would you, would you give people a picture of the irresistible beauty of Jesus? Would you give life, even now? Would you do it for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name.